up next, uh, being summoned from uh, the ether to gaze down upon me like a, uh, like Richard Burton in, the, uh, in 1984, uh, is uh, Patrick Eddington. Uh, Pat is a, a, a fellow fellow here at Cato uh, and uh, uh, also uh, deeply uh, embedded in uh, research on uh, surveillance and national security uh, uh, espionage. And uh, in particular, uh, Patrick is very much committed to the uh, aggressive use of the Freedom of Information Act, uh, a, 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 an arduous and thankless process which has recently borne some uh, fruit uh, in the form of uh, documents that uh, may uh, shed some light on potential uh, use of uh, intelligence authorities to uh, investigate uh, non-government organizations and civil society groups. Uh, and I will let, uh, I will let Patrick uh, tell you what he thinks he's found uh, in the heart of FOIA. Julian, thanks. Uh, and my thanks to uh, all of you there in the auditorium, uh, as well as those of you who are watching online. Um, you know, earlier today, we had just an absolutely outstanding presentation by uh, Julie Mao. I, I think it's going to be very difficult for me to, uh, to kind of beat that, but I'm, I'm going to do my best to at least stay even. Um, you know, one of the things that we have underway here at Cato and have had since roughly April of 2019 is a fairly large Freedom of Information Act program that is designed essentially to cover the backs, if you will, of everybody else in civil society out there working on various issues. You know, uh, Just Futures Law, Miente, uh, and uh, just literally hundreds, if not thousands of other nonprofits are out there every day working on, you know, a particular set of issues where they're trying to help a, a given slice uh, of America uh, realize more of the American dream. And they should be able to do that without the government, uh, the federal government especially, looking over their shoulder or perhaps even doing worse. So as part of this uh, little project, as I like to call it, uh, in April of 2019, I began sending out a series of FOIA requests to the FBI. Um, it's not the only uh, element of the federal government that I focus on with this research, but it does burn up uh, the lion's share of my time, simply because uh, of the FBI's history in this particular area, uh, but also because of the radical authorities, essentially, that they have that allow them to go out and engage in this kind of activity. So uh, to that end, you know, one of the things that I, I like to point out to folks is that, yes, you can use FOIA to try to essentially peel back some of this stuff uh, and figure out whether or not they're targeting your group or whatever, but there are some limitations. Uh, and I think we have to be honest about that with respect to this. Uh, Section 552C of FOIA literally does allow the government to lie essentially about whether or not uh, they have an active investigation uh, underway uh, or the use of an assessment. And I'll make that distinction here uh, shortly. Um, and it allows them essentially to simply not disclose records. They will give you a response that'll essentially say something to the effect of no records responsive to the FOIA. Uh, and that's exactly what you will see. So when you file an initial FOIA, you may get nothing. If you were to wait a few years and file it on exactly the same organization, uh, you might get a very different response. Um, and when you try to basically interrogate uh, the FBI on this particular issue, they will always use what amounts to a Glomar response, which is a refuse to confirm or deny uh, whether or not they've actually used a 552C, although the Office of Information Policy, the Department of Justice, will always tell you that the invocations uh, have been done in a completely lawful and totally above board manner. 
Whether that's the case or not, we don't know because that aspect of this has never been investigated by an independent body. Stand by one second. Um, our case study here involves the National Security Archive at George Washington University. This is an organization that has been around since 1985. Uh, it is a 501c3 recognized nonprofit founded by journalists, academics, uh, and other folks, uh, kind of like myself, who are interested in utilizing FOIA in a very uh, large scale way to try to pierce this veil of secrecy behind which the FBI, DEA, ICBP, and other agencies and departments operate. It's important for me to emphasize at the outset that the National Security Archive has never had any ties to hostile intelligence services or agents of a foreign power seeking to undermine U.S. security. It has an absolutely spotless record uh, as an American nonprofit. I filed uh, on behalf of Cato a series of these FOIAs beginning in, as I said, in April of 2019. Uh, and there was an initial batch of roughly 76 organizations. The archive was among those. Um, and when I got the material, I reached out uh, to folks at the archive, uh, their director of policy, Lauren Harper specifically. And I said, hey, have you guys ever done a FOIA on yourselves to kind of see? And she said, well, yeah, but they told us there was nothing. And I said, boy, do I have news for you. Uh, and so working together, essentially, we were able to kind of piece together what you see now in front of you, which is a timeline, which gives you a sense of just exactly how this has unspooled over the course of the last 15 years or so. Um, in November of 2005, the archives did, in fact, file a FOIA with the Bureau looking for exactly the kind of information that I'm looking for. In other words, records that show the collection of information or monitoring or surveillance, observation, questioning, interrogation, et cetera. Uh, on the archive or those affiliated with it, uh, as well as its users. Uh, and in January of 2006, the FBI said, no, no main files uh, within the time period in question. Um, and that's another aspect of the FBI's operating uh, mode here is that they almost always never do a genuinely thorough search, even when you ask for one. Uh, it, literally became, it literally becomes a game of 20 questions oftentimes. So not, not shockingly, the archive filed an appeal with the, the uh, DOJ's Office of Information Policy, uh, citing the fact that the search was, uh, that the Bureau had conducted was grossly inadequate. Uh, in April of 2006, OIP acknowledged uh, that appeal and never said another word to the archive uh, about that appeal. So then come to November of 2019, when I finally get uh, the response from the FBI, which produces about uh, 76 records, uh, actually uh, about 46 pages of records, excuse me, uh, on the archive itself that had been previously released from another FOIA, but not to the archives itself. So somebody else was uh, basically trying to find out uh, some information about the archive back at that particular period of time. The, what the documents basically show us is that the material that we received spans from 1989 uh, to August of 2004, and it really does show pretty clearly that the Bureau monitored the archives activities throughout this period, particularly um, uh, the Bureau had an interest in what the archive was doing, essentially commemorating certain Cold War milestones, particularly the Cuban Missile Crisis and some of the other events that uh, flowed from it. Um, and it's pretty clear to me on the basis of my examination of the records that the, that the FBI also uh, was involved in using some level of electronic surveillance, whether that was FISA or whether it was, you know, another method uh, is unclear at this point in time. I suspect it was primarily FISA, 
because of the Cuban connection uh, and essentially the foreign intelligence angle, uh, which of course is exactly what would implicate the use of Pfizer there. It's also clear that physical surveillance was involved and on the basis of the direct mention of envelopes <laughs> that they had examined, I don't think there's any question that there was a mail, what's known as a mail cover uh, involved. This is where the Bureau will go to the Postal Service and ask them uh, to essentially take down the to and from data uh, on any kind of envelope, uh, parcel, et cetera, that is addressed to a particular uh, target of interest to the FBI. The Bureau was clearly interested, at least in, in the archive, at least as early as September of 1989. And on September 14th of, of 1989, then Director William Sessions uh, sent a cable classified secret to the FBI's Washington field office and a number of other offices directing that the intelligence division within the Bureau obtain additional information regarding the archive uh, from all the relevant privacy uh, offices uh, and FOIA offices uh, within, uh, within FBI and elsewhere. Um, the very fact that the intelligence division was involved in this is another deeply troubling aspect of all of this. Uh, the archive was engaged in completely First Amendment protected activity in making the FOIA, trying to determine what the Bureau was collecting on them, and the idea that this should somehow turn into an intelligence gathering operation um, on the archive, just on that basis, is, uh, is deeply troubling, to say the least. Uh, Sessions was really, I think, very on about the fact that a former uh, Department of Justice attorney and one of their very uh, leading FOIA gurus, a guy by the name of Quinlan Shea, had actually gone to work for the archive uh, and was helping them, uh, along with a former Washington Post reporter, uh, really kind of begin to get things off the ground uh, in terms of looking at not just DOJ, but other agencies as well. Um, and it wasn't just those two guys that made the archive run. Tom Blanton and some other folks I know had a lot to do with that as well. Uh, but it, I think the fact that they were so focused on Quinn Shea is, is a former DOJ employee is very, very notable here. Um, so was it all just a big mistake? Um, no, I, I definitely think not. All the documents that we received here at Cato um, are the kinds of records that are routinely entered into the FBI's Central Records System, or CRS. And you, you're particularly uh, going to see cables like the one that Sessions uh, issued to the, to the Washington Field Office and elsewhere that explicitly names the archives. That's going to come up immediately in any kind of search of CRS. So that's what tells me, really beyond any doubt, um, that, they, that they did not... Uh, uh, behave in what I would describe as a truthful manner uh, with the archive at the time. I, I will have to admit, reluctantly, but I will admit that this particular section of FOIA that I mentioned, 552C, does, at least in theory, serve a relatively legitimate purpose, i.e. shielding properly predicated bureau investigations from premature exposure. But in this case, um, I'm of the view that this was not, never a properly predicated investigation. Certainly, um, not prior to the uh, archives' direct involvement, at least some of its personnel, uh, in meeting with uh, Cuban government officials or making trips to Cuba. And even then, I would, I would seriously question whether or not, um, you know, that kind of activity, that monitoring was really actually uh, truly necessary, much less legitimate. The interactions of archive staff with Cuban government officials, I think, is really clearly, you know, one of the big things that the Bureau was interested in. And you can make, I think, a pretty convincing case uh, they would certainly try to make a case at DOJ um, that from a foreign intelligence standpoint, uh, they had a legitimate interest in knowing what was going on here. Uh, my counterpoint to that is that this was all above board. Um, the archive staff, you know, promoted these events. These are kind of the typical 
Washington area and, you know, other think tanks, of course, across the country do this kind of thing too. invite in foreign government officials or other representatives of, of foreign establishments, foreign uh, uh, organizations to participate in, event, in events just like the one that you're watching right now. And I think the very fact that the Bureau engaged in that kind of activity with respect to the archive really does have very chilling implications uh, for all civil society organizations that try to basically engage in what I would call as basically freedom of association activities uh, with, uh, with foreign nationals and foreign organizations. Our friends uh, at the archive did find, did find uh, the ability to have at least some sense of humor about what happened here. Uh, this is what Lauren Harper, uh, my colleague over the, at the archive had to say about this. Uh, this Rosemary Award they give out is a really good one. Uh, they spend a lot of time basically looking at just exactly how bad an awful lot of organizations are uh, at responding to FOIA. But of course, this is much closer to home for the folks at the archive. And uh, I, I would absolutely uh, second a thousand times over uh, the last sentence here. It's long past time for the Bureau to put its energies into effectively responding to FOIA requesters instead of surveilling them. And of course, I would go much further and say that the Bureau has no business, no legitimate business, in looking at completely First Amendment protected activities by civil society organizations. And that, as they say, is my time. Julian, back to you.